about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those who have young. Second Bible reading is from Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 8, and is a BYO reading, sorry. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of God. Well, it's a new year. Uh, It's been a new year for a few weeks. Let's make sure I'm in the middle. Um, But of course, in the rhythms of Australian life, we're really only now getting going again properly. Uh, ABC is still playing programs on repeat. 
It's also the beginning of a new chapter in the life of this church of some sort. But how are we going to begin this new year? How do we get going in this new stage? It's, it's not actually the easiest thing to do. Because in some ways it feels like we can't begin again yet, doesn't it? We're still in a time of waiting. We're waiting to get past this flaming virus. We're waiting to be able to use our Erskineville building again as a church. You might not feel that here, but the morning congregations do. Waiting to be able to sing again. You might be waiting to go back to work in the way you used to. Waiting to be able to see family again. Some of us have had holidays messed around again by border closures. Some of us don't feel like we're quite beginning again yet at all. And yet we do have to begin. We can't just wait, can't just put everything on hold. We have to get going. So how do we do it? How do we begin again this year and begin well as individuals, families, households, churches? A good way, I believe, is to remind ourselves of what it is we are about as a church and as Christians, to refresh our appreciation for this thing that we're a part of. We can ask and try to see afresh what it is that Christianity is about, what drives it, what gets it going, what's the fuel that powers this rocket. Well, the book of Isaiah can help us do this especially the part of Isaiah we're going to be paying attention to over the next few weeks, chapters 40 to 45. We'll come back to uh, 46 to 55 at the end of the year, I hope. Because what we get in in these chapters, you see, is, is a really amazing vantage point or a line of sight on the gospel, on the good news at the heart of Christianity. In fact, the very idea of good news, of a gospel, gospel just means good news, comes in in large part from today's reading. In verse 9, where it says, you who bring good news to Zion, um, when that Hebrew word was translated into Greek, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it was translated as, with the word for gospel, evangelion. Uh, And that's one of the kind of key origins of this idea of the gospel, I I think. There's other things, but that's a key part. This part of Isaiah, you see, shows us something about what the gospel's about. It shows us this, though, from a particular angle, as I said. And to understand this, we need to understand a little bit, at least, of where these chapters fit in to history and to the Bible. Now, this is something we could go into at quite a lot of length, uh, but we, I don't, don't want to spend the whole night doing that. So what I've done is to write uh, a, an introduction. It's probably shorter than you'd like it to be. Uh, sorry, it's longer than you'd like it to be, but shorter than it could have been. Um, and we actually sent it out. It was linked in the weekly email. Now, if I ask you how many of you read it with the weekly email, I'm sure all your hands are going to go up uh, like they didn't in the morning service. So um, I won't ask you that. But if you retrieve your weekly email from the trash or the spam folder, um, you'll see under the Isaiah bit, there's actually a link where you can, you can get it. And you may find it helpful 
to get a bit more background on this. But in brief, what we need to know is just this. These chapters of Isaiah originally speak to a a pretty particular moment in the life of Israel. And that's a time which has been called the Babylonian exile. Okay, what is that? What is the Babylonian exile? Well, it, it was a period in the 6th century BC, that is the 500s BC, which was basically the darkest time in Israel's history, when the armies of the Babylonian Empire had come and overtaken Jerusalem, destroyed the temple and all the infrastructure of the society and taken most of the people and all the leaders that they hadn't killed captive to Babylon. It was kind of a, kind of a big deal, right? The, the, the foreigners, the foreign empire completely won and everybody went into exile or captivity. And the people of Israel found themselves slaves in a foreign land, long way away, with foreign gods all around them and totally powerless. And into that situation, the prophet Isaiah speaks a message of profound comfort. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Say to her that her hard service has been completed. What becomes clear, though, and for more on this, again, see the introduction uh, I talked about, is that this message of comfort that Isaiah had is, is not just about that time in the 6th century. It was about that time, but it wasn't just about that. It was also, it, it, Isaiah's words also had a wider reach. They spoke of a deliverance that went further and deeper than that. Even after the exiles have come back from their land, which they did in 537 BC, they they came back, they were allowed to go back, Uh, even even after that, Isaiah's promises still seem to speak of things yet to come, or not yet quite fulfilled. They they are kind of holding, this, this comfort seems to still stand open, waiting for something. And to cut a long story short, that is why these words of Isaiah came to be foundational for Christianity. Absolutely foundational. Um, I hope you notice the, correct, the connection in our New Testament reading. Uh, the, the very beginning of Mark's gospel takes the words of Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3 and tells us they are about John the Baptist. He is the voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And this part of Isaiah will be quoted again and again in the New Testament. Just because it seemed to the earliest Christians so obvious that what Isaiah had had spoken about had, had come to its fullness now in this man, Jesus. And that's why Isaiah can help us refresh our understanding of the gospel. Although he doesn't speak of Jesus directly, Isaiah does speak of Jesus profoundly. Jesus is the final fulfillment of Isaiah's promise that comfort and deliverance are coming. What we get to do in these chapters, you see, is to see the good news of Jesus from a different angle. 
It's like you're in a, um, you're in a museum looking at a, a statue and you just walk around the room to a different part and, and new things about the statue stand out. That's kind of what we get to do here. And I pray that it will renew us and refresh us over the coming weeks at the tricky beginning of this year. Um, just in passing, I, I also just want to note that in a way what we're doing is just what happens in Handel's Messiah. Uh, if you know that piece of music, you'll know that most of the words are taken from Isaiah chapter 40 and, and onwards. Um, and these chapters are, are there understood to be a kind of portrait of the gospel. I did toy with singing the first canticle to you, partly because I'm allowed to sing up the front, so, but that might put you off it. So I'm not going to do that, but I wholeheartedly, like with all my soul, I recommend listening to Handel's Messiah as you work through these sermons. It, it will refresh you, especially if you have these, these words in the background. Okay, well, that's a fairly long introduction. Um, but I'm hoping that it will help us begin this whole series of sermons. But let's turn now to the reading from chapter 40. If you've got a little piece of paper, that'll probably help you. Um, what do we notice here as we begin to try to see the Christian faith from this new vantage point? Well, we can sum it up as three things. First, the passage reminds us that what we are about is good news. Good news. Second, it tells us that this good news is also bracing news, challenging news. And third, it reminds us who it is that stands behind this good news and makes it possible. Okay, so three things. First, good news. The opening words of this passage remind us beautifully that what we have to celebrate, the heart of the Christian faith, is good news. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The message Isaiah has to proclaim is one of comfort. The time of suffering, the time of hard service is finished. Because sin has been paid for. The problem has been dealt with and is now done. Notice the language, the tone, comfort, comfort, speak tenderly. Imagine how this must have felt to those in exile. Those who had seen family members killed. The temple ransacked. Homes destroyed. And now found themselves as captives laboring in Babylon. This was a people deeply distressed. If you want a really sobering look at it, read Psalm 137, uh, which is a kind of lament at this situation in Babylon. And it, and it ends with words that a few of us can imagine even being able to speak. Imagine them hearing. That comfort was, was, was on the way. How is it going to happen, though? Well, Isaiah doesn't actually tell us very much. Well, he just tells us one thing. God is going to come and to act. It's almost like that bit 
if you've read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where they hear that Aslan is on the move, God is going to come. Look at verse 3. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places are plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The imagery of a highway may have been particularly powerful in Babylon. In that city, there were these, as I understand it, these big open main streets through the city, and the Babylonian gods as, as idols, statues, used to be paraded down these streets to show their magnificence. Isaiah will have quite a lot to say about these gods uh, in the coming chapters. Well, now the God of Israel is coming. And the earth will move to make way for him. The valleys will rise up and mountains will squash themselves in submission. The Lord is coming to deliver his people. There are some unanswered questions about how all this is going to happen. And how is it that Israel's sin has been paid for? It's okay, actually, for these to remain a bit unresolved. This is just Isaiah's prelude, his overture. He has much more to say, but for now, he just wants us to hear this brilliant, beautiful opening note. Comfort. Deliverance. Friends, let's not forget that we're here because we have good news to celebrate. We have heard an announcement. Did you notice the language of crying and calling out? It's just all through this passage. This, this announcement, this news, there's this news here. An announcement that comfort and deliverance are here and we mustn't forget either that what we have to celebrate is good, nor that it is news. On the one hand, we mustn't forget that the Christian faith is about something wonderfully good. I think sometimes we do forget this. It's not the easiest time for the church, and we hear much, and much of it is true, about the mistakes Christians have made. There are many voices who will tell us that Christianity is not a good thing for a whole range of reasons. Now, many of these uh, ideas open up complex conversations that I don't want to oversimplify. But I do want to stand firm on, on one thing, which is that what is at the heart of the Christian faith the message that gets it going in the first place is good. It is good. It's news that comes, as the proverb says, like cold water to a thirsty soul. Comfort, deliverance, the time of waiting, the time of hard service is over. Thank God that this is what is at the heart of our faith. It's something good. It's news that we needed to hear and that the world longs to hear. But we also mustn't forget that it is news. Now, that's a kind of an odd 
thing. So let me explain what I mean by that. Um, I just mean that it, we're talking about a happening, something that has happened and not just something we can do or can know. We are not here because we have a nice community or because we have some true and important teaching about how to live. Hopefully, we do have both those things, at least some of the time. But they aren't what makes Christianity tick. News, you see, is about events. And that's what we've got at the heart of things. The news that something has happened, that God has done something remarkable. Isaiah didn't quite know what that was, but we do. In the Lord Jesus, God has acted to save. He has done something to comfort us once and for all. Something that really means hard service is finished, sin is dealt with. That's what got John the Baptist out there in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance, the news that God was on the move, that he was coming to act. It's important to remember that because it means that what we have to celebrate is secure. It doesn't depend on us getting it right. Because it's, it's just happened. It's, it's solid. It's done. However well or badly this year goes, however well or badly we do as a church, it will remain the case that comfort has come into the world because of what God has done. Isn't that a relief? I think it's a relief and I think it should be. It's not without a challenge though, this good news. The second thing this passage from Isaiah shows us is that this comfort is a bracing comfort. It's good news that pulls you up like a cold wind, makes you stop and face some tough truths about ourselves and one another. A voice says, cry out in verse 6, and I said, what shall I cry? This, this is what you shall cry. All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field, the grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. It's interesting, that line. It doesn't just say, I like grass. It says, surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. The price of this good news is that you have to face up to a fairly sobering truth. All people are like grass. Uh, why grass? And why is this something we need to face up to? Why grass? Because grass and flowers show us a truth about ourselves that we easily look away from. No one can pretend that grass and flowers last forever. This image wouldn't really work with, say, an oak tree, because you can kind of think that an oak tree is kind of, it's an image of kind of permanence, but grass, not so much. The grass in my yard was amazing on Friday and is now brown um, because of two days of sun. When it gets water, grass grows. When the water stops, 
the grass withers. Flowers come, they do their thing, they look beautiful, unless they're chrysanthemums, but then they fall. Sorry if you're a chrysanthemum lover, just a, seemed like a great moment to get stuck into them. But why is this something we need to face up to? Why is this the message that the prophet has to proclaim alongside the message of comfort? I think it's because our illusions about ourselves can stand in the way of receiving the comfort that is being offered. Our illusions about ourselves can get in the way of really hearing the good news. Now, that's a slightly difficult thought, so let's slow down a little on it. Some people need no reminding of what we're told here. Perhaps some of you know deep in your bones how frail human life is, how frail you are. What I find astonishing, though, is that so often we do need reminding of this fact. And that in a way it doesn't come naturally to us to know that human beings are creatures. Things with limits, things that die. Death keeps surprising us. I hope it hasn't surprised you sadly lately. I I don't quite know what's going on for all of you and hope that is not a difficult thing to say. Things come to an end and it shocks us. We know in theory that everyone dies, but somehow we don't imagine that that will apply to us. Acceptance of this fact has to be dragged out of us. It actually, it kind of gets dragged out of us with age, I think. The reality of our frailty, our limitations, is something we often avoid, even perhaps when we're in the midst of them. Even at a funeral, people will sometimes avoid speaking about death. And why do we do this? We do it, I think, because the truth of what our life is like is just really humbling. It is that we are not angels, superstars, gods. We're much more like grass. God's comfort, you see, comes at the cost of our idols, of our self-deceptions and grandiose self-beliefs. God requires us to lay down our proud images of ourselves and to accept the reality that we are just human beings. Dust as the Bible says. I think this is a lesson the pandemic ought to have taught us more than it has. Maybe it has taught you that, in which case it's a gift of wisdom. That even at our best, at our strongest, our most enduring, we are only like a flower, beautiful but not permanent. No place to store your deepest hopes and dreams. No person, however lovely or brilliant, no human institution, however grand and dignified, no nation, however noble, deserves your deepest loyalty and confidence. Again, we're being reminded here that what we have to celebrate, what makes Christian faith tick, is not something we supply some strength or power or stability we possess. 
This church and every church is held together by a word, a message that is deeply humbling. Because it means facing and confessing the fact that we, with our brilliance and efforts and programs and passions, are not our saviors. Nor is anyone else. There is only one sure ground on which to stand. The promises of God, the word of our God that endures forever. But do you know that to be humbled by that is also, again, kind of a relief. It's kind of a relief because it takes the pressure off a little bit if, if we're willing to just lean into it. We're only grass and flowers. It's not on us in the end. Let's begin this year actually with a bit of confidence and freedom, a lightness in our step, knowing that the ground on which we stand, the kingdom of God is solid and secure precisely because we didn't build it. We just received it. And nothing we can do can wreck it. All of this, though, depends on the final thing we see in this passage. See, why are the promises of God a secure place to stand? Why do we have such good news to celebrate? Because these things are grounded at their deepest root in God. Uh, just a little um, note at the beginning. Hebrew has a little word, hinei. Hine is, is uh, how you say it in Hebrew, and it just means look or see or behold. Um, but behold makes it seem kind of old worldly and weird. Um, you know, you use it just to get somebody to notice something. Hine, a bus. Hine, my keys. Now, three times in these verses, we're told to hine, to look, although the first isn't obvious in the English. In these verses, we see an evangelist, that is a herald of good news, telling people to come and look at something. Verse 9, you who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. Literally, Hine, your God. Look, your God. See, Hine, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See, Hine, look, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. Look, the herald cries. Hey, look at this. God. God is coming. The sovereign Lord, that's one of Isaiah's favorite descriptions of God. It just means the God who rules the whole earth, the true king. He is coming to rule and to judge. He's coming with power, with a mighty arm to pay back, and to judge. But then suddenly there's a twist. What does this powerful sovereign Lord do? Verse 11, he tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. The mighty arm that rules... My arm doesn't look particularly mighty, but imagine it does look a bit more. The mighty arm that rules will gather the lambs 
and hold them with its strength. Use its strength to hold them close to its heart, his heart. The sovereign Lord will be the gentle, patient guide who keeps them safe. Brothers and sisters, here is the ground of the gospel, the, the unshakable ground of the good news, the thing that brings perfect relief. The true and living God. The God who is powerful beyond imagining and therefore truly tender. The God whose strength is made perfect in gentleness. And whose extraordinary purpose is to draw us into the intimacy of his embrace near to his heart. Behold him. He is the reason we have good news to share and to celebrate. And the reason not to be distracted by delusions of our own grandeur. He is better than anything we can do or be. Now in these striking descriptions, we have this really sharp line of sight, I think, on, on the cross of Christ. For it is there above all that we read that the one we read of here in Isaiah is made known. For there we see true power, extraordinary power that breaks down every evil stronghold, that delivers not just from the Romans or from the world's authorities, but from death and sin. And where do we see this power? We see it precisely where we see the good shepherd who gathers his lambs and carries them close to his heart and gently leads those tending the little ones. Jesus Christ, who is in the Father's heart and who gave himself to draw us into that perfect embrace. Ah, this is better than anything in the world, isn't it? What are people, what is the strength of men compared to this? At the beginning of this year, brothers and sisters, first and foremost, behold your God. See him in his glory and beauty, his strength and tenderness, and his grace to you, and be reminded of what we are about, of the center that doesn't depend on us and that will hold us together whatever will come. We are here because the true and living God has acted once and for all to draw us into his tender embrace. Nothing else is worthy of our confidence and trust. But that news, that word, it will stand forever. Let us pray. Sovereign Lord, yours is the power and the right. You are the Lord and judge of heaven and earth. And you are also our merciful Father, our good shepherd. Your mighty arm reaches out to us in gentleness. 
Your strength makes your tenderness secure and safe. We worship you. And we thank you for this grace you show to us, your constant goodness, your again and again mercy. Pour this love into our hearts anew, Father, and make us yours. Day by day, draw us ever closer into your embrace and teach us to walk by its strength, by the power of your Spirit, in the presence of your Son, Jesus Christ, through whom we pray. Amen. Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.